Welcome to our Bon Bon podcast series, with Matt and Joanna. We provide critical information that affects your everyday life. Please be advised that the following program is for entertainment purposes only. In this podcast, we will go over the United States Consumer Product Safety. You will find out which federal agencies are involved when it comes to safety of your food and other consumer products. You will hear about some disturbing facts that we are about to reveal. How these federal agencies screen products imported into the United States. What Chinese companies have been doing to escape product liabilities for exported goods into the United States. Due to the complexity of the subject matter, we will split this subject into two podcasts. The second part will be case studies and history of major recalls and lawsuits. These disturbing facts will shock you. So, please stay tuned. Matt, how big is China market share for consumer goods in the United States? Joanna, good question. In 2019, consumer goods from China totaled nearly $452 billion and accounted for over 18% of all U.S. imports. However, this is really disturbing. As an example, According to the latest data that we obtained from the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, in 2014, Chinese goods constituted 23% of all goods in the United States, but represented 51% of all product safety recalls. Since 2012, Chinese products have accounted for the majority of all safety recalls. I just want to specify that the data is reported by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commissions, or the CPSC. This is one of the five federal agencies responsible for product safety in the United States. These recalls are under its jurisdiction only. Wow! So Chinese products account for more than 50% of recalls in the United States. I am not surprised based on what we have discussed in our past podcasts. Who are the U.S. federal agencies, the gatekeepers of our safety? I have been always confused about these facts. Perhaps we can explain once to our listeners before we discuss further. Joanna, you are not the only one. Until we did some research on this topic, I am a little puzzled myself. Five federal agencies are responsible for product safety in the United States. Once a product has arrived at the U.S. border, responsibility for safety inspections varies among U.S. agencies according to their jurisdiction. The following are quick descriptions of their areas of responsibilities. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is responsible for most consumer products. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration oversees most foods, seafood, except catfish, animal foods, cosmetics, drugs, medical devices, tobacco, and radiation-emitting devices. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, is in charge of meat, poultry, catfish, and egg products. How interesting! Why is catfish under the USDA, and not the FDA? After all, it is seafood. Good question Joanna. Domestic catfish farmers lobbied to move the inspection from the FDA to the USDA, as a strategy against their foreign competitors. 
they were hoping that the USDA will pay more attention to toxic foreign farmed fish. However, this strategy did not really work. The USDA honors foreign government standards, which are usually less strict than the ones in the United States. In other words, American fish farmers have to follow American strict rules regarding antibiotics and other chemical residues in fish. But foreign fish farmers only have to follow their own country's regulations to be able to export fish into United States. Yes, you are correct. Let's go over other agencies who are also in charge of product safety in the United States. The US National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is in charge of automobiles, motorcycles, trucks, and tires. The Environmental Protection Agency controls pesticides and fungicides. The majority of products imported from China fall under the responsibilities of the United States Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, and the United States Consumer Product Safety Commission, or the CPSC. The FDA estimates all imported products under its review constitute roughly 20% of the U.S. economy. In 2015, over $754 billion worth of all imported products at 327 U.S. ports fell under the CPSC's jurisdiction. That is a lot of responsibilities for these two U.S. agencies. Let's go over how these two important agencies screen imports. Given limited resources and huge responsibilities, both the CPSC and the FDA use a risk-based approach for examining imported goods. When a ship containing imported products enters a U.S. port, a customs broker files entry documentation with the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or the CBP. The customs document includes the type of product and identities of the shipper, importer, and manufacturer. The same information is sent to the CPSC, or the FDA, for review. Subsequently, reviewing agencies apply methodologies that estimate potential safety risks, associated with the shipment, based on the received information. So, they do not really inspect every shipment that enters the United States. The inspection is based on a computer system predicting risk. Yes, indeed. If the screening indicates that a shipment has a higher risk of containing non-compliant products, the CPSC or the FDA may deploy on-site inspectors to examine the imported products. If the product contains a defect, fails to comply with a technical regulation, has been banned, or creates an unreasonable risk of injury or death, the CPSC may stop the shipment and prevent it from entering the country. Similarly, if the FDA determines a product to be adulterated or misbranded, the agency may refuse entry for the product. A refused shipment must be destroyed or sent back within 90 days of the refusal. It sounds like they have everything under control. But, how come we have so many recalls and so much toxic food entering the United States? Joanna, I got news for you. They do not have everything under control. The FDA has been inspecting less than 2% of products entering the United States for the past 20 years. Recently, the agency has dropped the inspection rate from 2% to 1%.
This is due to lack of resources and the increased imports. In the 2021 performance budget request to Congress, the CPSC stated that the agency previously asked for an additional $4 million to increase staff presence at 22 U.S. ports. But the funding was denied. The funding was for adding personnel at five ports that had no physical presence of CPSC staff and at major ports that have import volumes largely exceeding the agency's capacity. This is just terrible. I am speechless. We have so many safety issues here, and this kind of funding should be a priority to protect us, as consumers. Congress denied important funding, but spent on other less important agenda. Joanna, I agreed with you. That is why people should demand their congressmen, or congresswomen, to do something to protect consumers. If they refused, don't vote for them. This may help the collaboration among government agencies. The CPSC port investigators are co-located with the United States Customs and Border Protection, or the, CBP, at U.S. ports of entry. Port investigators identify and prevent non-compliant consumer products from entering the United States. For those who do not recall what we said earlier, the CPSC is short for the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And the FDA is short for the Food and Drug Administration. These two agencies supervise the majority of food and consumer products entering the United States. Both the FDA and the CPSC maintain offices in Beijing. The CPSC has two professional staff members, while the FDA has 23. These offices primarily help the Chinese government and suppliers understand U.S. safety requirements and maintain a relationship between U.S. and Chinese regulators. There are roughly 27,000 FDA-registered Chinese suppliers, but due to lack of personnel, the FDA can only inspect a small percentage of facilities in China and relies primarily on U.S.-based screening to ensure product safety. Great. It is good to know that they rely on the U.S.-based agencies, who do not have enough capacity to inspect everything. I pray to God that someone out there, will speak up, on behalf of the U.S. consumers, to do something about toxic food and unsafe consumer products. You got your point, Joanna. Chinese consumer exports to the United States continue to pose a product safety risk. Although Chinese safety regulations have improved in recent years, gaps in China's product safety regulatory structure have led to unsafe consumer products. As of 2020, China is the largest foreign supplier of consumer goods to the United States. At the same time, Chinese products account for a disproportionate number of product recalls in the United States. Matt, what are the unique problems found in Chinese products? Chinese imports pose several unique safety problems to U.S. regulators and consumers. These are a few common ones. Chinese manufacturers can rapidly export newly invented products in large quantity before safety standards can be drafted for these products in the United States. Seeking legal action against Chinese companies that ship unsafe products into the United States can be extremely difficult. 
Chinese firms often claim they are not subject to U.S. jurisdiction. Serving Chinese defendants and obtaining discovery are time-consuming and often require cooperation from the Chinese central government. Additionally, Chinese state-owned enterprises recently begun using the U.S. Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act to claim they are immune to civil prosecution under U.S. law. Chinese firms have arbitrarily changed their product designs without notifying U.S. retailers, which can cause high-risk products to circulate widely in the United States. Occasionally, Chinese suppliers have cut corners in production to save costs, supplying U.S. importers with defective goods, raising safety risks, and leaving U.S. retailers responsible for recall and replacement costs. Finally, the Chinese regulatory structure is weak regarding product safety. Wow! I am just overwhelmed and did not know about these facts. By the way, what is the Foreign Sovereign Immunity? In accordance with international law, foreign sovereign governments are generally immune from lawsuits in the United States. Congress enacted the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act in 1976, due to diplomatic pressure. The Act provides a comprehensive set of standards to guide courts, with respect to foreign sovereign immunity. However, there are two exceptions, commercial activities, and tortious, or wrongful acts. In these two cases, the foreign state shall be liable in the same manner, and to the same extent as a private individual. 1976 was the year that President Jimmy Carter defeated incumbent President, Gerald Ford, by a narrow margin. The act became law in October 1976. So, it was passed under President Gerald Ford. Let's go over some major lawsuits and case studies of major recalls. I think they are quite interesting. I heard that some states actually brought lawsuits against China for spreading COVID, causing businesses to be shut down. Yes, indeed. In 2020, lawsuits against the People's Republic of China were filed in California, Florida, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Texas. These are class action suits, on behalf of persons and businesses in the United States, who have suffered injury, damage, and loss related to the coronavirus outbreak. The state of Missouri and Mississippi have sued China on similar grounds on behalf of itself and residents. The lawsuits essentially alleged that the People's Republic of China failed to inform the World Health Organization and the world about the contagiousness and scope of outbreak of the disease in China, in a timely manner. The suit stated that, during the critical weeks of the initial outbreak, Chinese authorities deceived the public, suppressed crucial information, arrested whistleblowers, denied human-to-human -human transmission, destroyed critical medical research, permitted millions of people to be exposed to the virus, and even hoarded personal protective equipment. Consequently, these wrongful actions caused a global pandemic that was unnecessary and preventable. The lawsuits claim to fall within statutory exceptions to immunity for tortious or commercial acts in the United States. Wow, all I can say is good luck. By the way, these lawsuits were filed in the United States District Courts. Bringing China 
a powerful country, to a district court, seems to be an impossible task. But we have learned from the past that some Chinese state-run companies ended up complying with the U.S. district court, due to business pressure. In the case of China, I am not sure about these COVID lawsuits. By the way, do you know what COVID stands for? COVID is short for, China Originated Viral Infections Diseases. For your information, on July 30, 2020, the Senate Judiciary Committee, approved the Civil Justice for Victims of China Originated Viral Infections Diseases, or, COVID, Act. This bill would amend the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, to permit lawsuits against China, for claims related to the coronavirus. As a reminder, we mentioned that China state-owned companies, often use Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, to claim immunity, to escape from lawsuits in the United States. Let's go back to history. I'm sure that some of our listeners were affected by the next case, with, or without their knowledge. The Chinese toxic formaldehyde flooring. Yes, let's discuss the case of lumber liquidators. Lumber Liquidators is the largest retailer of hardwood flooring in North America, with over 360 stores in 46 states. More than 100 million square feet of the company's cheaper Chinese laminate flooring have been installed in American homes every year. In 2013, a hedge fund manager was concerned that U.S. flooring retailer Lumber Liquidators had rapidly increased its profit margins by importing flooring that was underpriced, and not compliant with the U.S. law. After receiving a tip that the company was importing formaldehyde-tainted flooring from China, the hedge fund manager short-sold lumber liquidators' stocks. Interesting. I know that these fund managers monitor the company performance all the time, to predict whether the stock would go up, or down. Some manage billions of dollars of stock portfolio. So. They have a very important role. I am not sure if everyone knows about this fact. Formaldehyde can be present in some glues, used in the construction of flooring, and can leak into homes. This tip led investigators in California to test Lumber Liquidator's product, revealing that the flooring, sourced from China, routinely contained formaldehyde in excess of California state standards. On average, the Chinese samples contain six to seven times the level of formaldehyde, permitted by state law, and some samples contained up to 20 times the permitted amount. Prolonged exposure to formaldehyde has known health risks, such as increased chances of developing asthma, chronic respiratory irritation, and leukemia. Wow, this is unbelievable. It is all about profits. It is sad. Joanna. Listen to this. Following this testing, the news broadcast network, CBS, launched its own investigation into flooring sourced from China. CBS tested 31 boxes of Chinese-made flooring in several U.S. states, and found that, while all of them carried labels claiming they were compliant with California standards, only one contained less than the amount allowed by California law, and some exceeded the legal limit by a factor of 13. CBS also sent investigators to the Chinese flooring mills, 
which manufactured flooring for lumber liquidators. These suppliers admitted they provided flooring that contained high levels of formaldehyde, and deliberately mislabeled them as being compliant with California standards. This really irritates me. I wonder if I live in one of those homes. My place was built around that time. I noticed that I have chronic respiratory irritation. But it could be the pollution here, in California. From our previous podcast, we mentioned that 25% of pollution in California comes from Asia, mainly China. In 2016, Lumber Liquidators was sentenced in federal court, after pleading guilty to environmental crimes, related to Chinese flooring. As a result, the company paid over $13.1 million in penalties, including $7.8 million in criminal fines, and received a five-year probation. In 2016, Congress passed a U.S. nationwide standard for formaldehyde levels in flooring, similar to the legislation adopted in California. It is good to know that Congress has done something for the entire country, but this does not prevent crooks from continuing selling toxic flooring. We have proof that in the lumber liquidator's case, they deliberately claimed they were compliant with California standards. Well, it takes two to tango. American corporations are part of the equation too. It is all about greed. Ready for the next case? It also affects homeowners. Our next topic is The Toxic Chinese Drywall Legal Battle Great, I cannot wait to listen to more toxic materials in my home. A great amount of drywall was imported from China, from 2004 to 2008, because of the housing market boom, and substantial rebuilding efforts, following Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. As a result, more than 100,000 U.S. homes had Chinese drywall within their structures. The imported Chinese drywall released sulfuric gases that corroded metal appliances, plumbing, and electrical components in homes. In addition, since the Chinese drywall is very brittle, when removed from an environment, microscopic pieces of the drywall were released into the air. These particles found their way into lungs similar to asbestos materials. Some of the health problems related to Chinese drywall were respiratory problems, irritated sinuses and eyes, dry throat, frequent nosebleeds, incessant coughing, and sleep apnea. The Consumer Product Safety Commission received more than 4,000 reports of tainted drywall, across 44 states. Given the high number of affected homes, and the expenses associated with repairs, it is estimated the total economic costs associated with tainted Chinese drywall to be, as high as $25 billion. This is just terrible. I feel sorry for those homeowners. Affected U.S. homeowners brought more than 700 builders, suppliers, and insurers to court to seek damages. However, given the high costs incurred, only Chinese manufacturers had the resources necessary to fund repairs. In 2009, a lawsuit was filed against two firms, who had supplied most of the tainted Chinese drywall. Knauf Plasterboard Tianjin, a Chinese affiliate of a German company, and Taishan Gypsum, 
A Chinese firm. Did they win the lawsuits? Yes, to some extent. In 2011, Knauf agreed to an $800 million settlement with U.S. homeowners. Taishan initially claimed that as a China-based company, it was not subject to litigation in the United States, and stopped appearing in court. In 2014, a U.S. judge took the exceptional step of preventing Taishan, or any of its affiliates, from doing business in the United States, and issued a penalty equal to 25% of its profits. This action prompted Taishan to start cooperating. In 2015, Taishan settled the single $2.7 million case brought against it, but still has not agreed to make payments to thousands of other affected U.S. homeowners. In 2012, the United States Congress passed the Drywall Safety Act, which set chemical standards for domestic and imported drywalls. It is nice to know. I just wonder, has anyone ever tested the drywall for chemicals before installing it in homes? Joanna, if you are so concerned about chemicals, don't live in a newly built home. Let's the house be vented for a few years. Or buy a really good air filter that can filter out chemicals. I was told that formaldehyde and flooring, for example, will take as long as four years to go away. Formaldehyde is everywhere in your home, from carpet, hardwood floor, to furniture. We will continue discussing more cases in our next podcast, the part two of consumer product safety. They are quite interesting. Please stay tuned. The contents of this podcast are from the book China: Hidden Poisons by A. Bon Bon LLC. This concludes our podcast today. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, please subscribe, share, and give us a five-star review. For further details of our publications, please visit our website at abonbon.com. You can also buy us coffee by clicking on the support the show link at the end of the podcast descriptions. Thank you. Thank you.